listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Like all healthcare, gender-affirming therapy is not one-size-fits-all. Some people seek hormone therapy, surgeries, hair removal, or speech training. Every person's journey of identity is different, and as pharmacists, we can help guide people on that journey. My name is Jordan Smith. I'm a clinical pharmacist. My pronouns are he, him. Gender-affirming therapy, or GAT, is not new. In fact, it's over a century old, having first been described by German physician Magnus Hirschfeld in the early 1900s. Hirschfeld was a strong advocate for members of the LGBT community and fought for gender affirmation and equality. Unfortunately, much of Hirschfeld's work was lost in the Nazi book burnings in 1933, regrettably somewhat contemporarily important. The methods and therapies have gone through many different iterations, but the overall goal has been the same, to affirm gender expression. Over the past few decades, gender-affirming therapy has become much more commonplace. The evidence to support it has grown, and now we have incredible resources and guidelines for support. Renowned organizations like the University of California at San Francisco, the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, or WPATH, and the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism provide evidence-based guidance for gender-affirming therapy. The medical community have been learning more about GAT, and it's been improving in accessibility dramatically over the past 40 years. Now, we as pharmacists are able to manage our patients' gender-affirming therapy. Therapy. As pharmacists, we work closely with physicians, social workers, psychologists, other specialties to make gender affirming therapy more accessible. We've recently had the pleasure of speaking with two of these pharmacists who work in the area and manage gender affirming pharmacotherapy for their patients. Dr. Sarah Kokosa is a clinical pharmacist practitioner in endocrinology at Duke University, and Dr. Kelsey Aragon is professor at the University of New Mexico College of Pharmacy. My name is Sarah Kokosa, and my pronouns are she and hers. My name is Kelsey Aragon, and my pronouns are she, her, hers. You'll hear from us again, too, students at High Point University. My name is Shane Gerritsen. My pronouns are he, him. My name is Adi Gante. My pronouns are he, him. I want to talk a little bit about your background, because I know that there's, we've talked about this with some of the other pharmacists as well. And, and what is your background? What's been your experience with your curriculum and then continuing education? Yeah, so when I went to school, I was at the Albany College of Pharmacy uh, in upstate New York, and gender-affirming care was not part of our curriculum at the time. Um, mind you, this was in the early 2000s as well. Um, and so I think now at this point here in North Carolina, gender-affirming care is a part of the curriculum of at least a few of the pharmacy schools here. And so I did not have exposure to this type of content during my training or during my residency training. It really wasn't until I joined Duke Endocrinology and be, became a specialist in endocrinology that I got into this topic in very recent years. Okay, so endocrinology came first and then were, mm -hmm. Was that already like a population that was being treated here at this clinic? Yes. So there has been a, a fairly long history of treating transgender patients here at this clinic, but there was a transition a few years ago where uh, we made a conscious decision to engage in a center of excellence for transgender mm -hmm. care, so to create a more robust program here at Duke Endocrine. Okay, and how has that grown a lot over the past few yeah. years? Yeah, okay. yeah, absolutely. It's grown. We are packed. We've added in, so we not only have a, a physician lead, we also have a fellow who is part of our program, and we've recently added on um, an advanced practice provider, a physician's assistant. Okay, that's really cool. Yeah, that's and we have learners and residents mm -hmm. uh, constantly rotating through with us. 
what kind of what kind of experience have you had? What kind of additional training have you been through to mm -hmm. have this this perspective and to be able to provide this kind of care for patients? Yeah, that's a great question. So I graduated from UNM College of Pharmacy in 2017, um, but during my APPEs, I actually did a rotation at my current practice site with the person, the pharmacist clinician who was in this practice before me. And um, her name is Jessica Conklin. She was amazing. And she exposed me to this patient population that I just absolutely fell in love with because it's just such a beautiful patient population to serve because they've been so marginalized, because you're giving them hormone therapy and like sometimes they light up when you prescribe it and they, or they're like when they come back for their three month follow-up visit or their one month follow-up visit just seeing like a complete shift sometimes in people and seeing true like joy and excitement and happiness about what's happening and that they finally feel like themselves it's just a very rewarding patient population to serve that was just four weeks and so i was like this is definitely like this is what i would love to do and so I went to do a community-based PGY-1 in North Carolina, in Asheville, North Carolina. And there I wanted to continue to serve this patient population as much as I could. And so as a resident, you have to do a research project. And so um, we did a survey of community-based pharmacists in North Carolina on their perceptions on their abilities to treat trans patients and gender non-conforming patients. And... Uh, that was very interesting, a very eye-opening, very exciting. I would say, I think it was like 93% of the pharmacists said that they feel like pharmacists are very important in the care of trans uh, patients, which I completely agree with, but only 3% of them had had education on the care of transgender or non-binary patients. So it was very much so a disparity, right? Like we know, and I think all of us can identify where medications are involved, a pharmacist should be involved. But sometimes pharmacists might not always be comfortable with those medications. Then I went back to UNM. I did a PGY2 in ambulatory care. And that preceptor actually ended up moving across the country. And so her job ended up opening up. And that's what I stepped into. And there's nothing scarier than getting your dream job as your first job. Um, but I was very lucky. And so that is how I kind of got trained in this space, is just providing the care. As pharmacists, one of the most important roles we play for our patients is monitoring pharmacotherapy. That's only natural as we are ostensibly the medication experts. Uh, the agents most commonly used are some you're likely familiar with. Masculinizing therapy uses testosterone, available in injectable and topical formulations. Feminizing therapy includes estrogens, which are available in oral, injectable, or topical formulations, as well as antiandrogens like spironolactone, finasteride, ditasteride, or bicalutamide. Like all medications, these agents aren't without their risks. But these drugs aren't new. They've been around for a long time and they're well studied. We know what we're looking for. For more specific information on these agents and how they're used for GAT, I direct listeners to the WPATH or UCSF guidelines mentioned at the top of the show and also linked in the notes. But before you do that, our guests have provided some important insight into the use of these agents and how we can use our knowledge to best serve our patients. Let's talk a little bit about the actual branches of, of therapy and the pharmacotherapy and like how they function for like, and what the proper terminology is. Cause when I, you know, as, as a student, someone who doesn't know the proper terminology, I'm still trying to learn it and help my uh, fellow students and professors learn it as well. I would say masculinizing or feminizing hormones. Is that the proper terminology? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. There, there's more than one set of terminology here that we can use and you're, you're, you're right on the button there. We, I spend a lot of time with our students 
students and residents first talking about background information. Before we even talk about the hormone therapy itself, we're talking about inclusive and respectful language, understanding both terminology and pronouns uh, in the significance of that, and then also the health disparities that patients experience, and then we get into the hormone therapy itself. And that's exactly right. It's masculinizing hormone therapy versus feminizing hormone therapy. And masculinizing hormone therapy typically involves testosterone, mm -hmm. either by injection, patch, pills, gel. And then feminizing hormone therapy usually requires both estrogen, either by uh, pill, patch, or injection, and also an androgen blocker, such as uh, spironolactone is what we use most commonly. Okay. As far as counseling for medications, um, so we say it, that this is an informed consent model, so there are really no contraindications to hormone therapy. That being said, like pregnancy and testosterone are a contraindication. That's like the one hard stop where um, we do pregnancy planning, all of those types of things for patients who are male but designated female at birth and are on testosterone. So we would do pregnancy planning for them um, if they ever wanted to carry their own child and get off testosterone during the pregnancy and breastfeeding if they wanted to, chest feeding. The, like just genders everywhere. So I tried to do chest feeding. But uh, in the community-based pharmacy from like a dispensing, one of the things that we run into quite often is that testosterone and estradiol injections are only FDA approved intramuscularly, but it's so much more comfortable for the patient and the all of the labs are the same, the safety monitors are... Uh, parameters are the same for a sub-Q injection. And so oftentimes we will write for sub-Q needles. So we'll write for a draw needle to draw up the testosterone, and then they take that off, put on their sub-Q needle to do the injection. And a lot of times we get pushback or like the wrong needles are dispensed. So that's like a big thing um, to think about is like, it is safe to do sub-Q um, One of the things that is always a gray area and we go back and forth with that. Our own clinic and pharmacy is testosterone one ml vials are technically not approved for multi-use in, like injections or draws. They're one-time use, but it's a controlled substance. And so, if someone's injecting 0.2 mLs for 40 milligrams, which is a, a very common dose for testosterone, then they technically could get four doses out of their medication. Usually they lose a little bit. So pushing it to five would be kind of an interesting thing, but pharmacies kind of will oftentimes do that where they'll dispense one ML vial for a month supply when really that vial has actually never even been tested to see if it's a sterile for a whole month after being introduced to a foreign object of the needle. That's very common. And I, I feel like they should get one ML vial for each uh, injection, but that's like one of those things where is pharmacy specific and usually they get one, one ML vial for the month. But that's one of those things um, that comes up kind of as an interesting con clinical conundrum for pharmacy. Estradiol, uh, we would just make sure that patients know the signs and symptoms of a clot um, are important for these patients and they're important for any patient who's taking estradiol. So again, like gender affirming care, like every patient who's getting prescribed estradiol is potentially at an increased risk. Any person who has estradiol as their dominant hormone is at an increased risk for blood clots compared to those who have testosterone as a dominant hormone. 
So it's almost like you shift your perspective to like, what are the increased risks of being someone who's born with estradiol as their dominant hormone and lives their life as estradiol with estradiol as their dominant hormone? We are more likely to have clots and things like that. So, so are our patients that are on it. What are the increased risks for people who are born with testosterone as their dominant hormone and then live their life with testosterone as a dominant hormone? They're more likely for certain cardiovascular things. And so therefore we need to make sure that we're monitoring lipids and waist circumference and all of those types of things for our patients. And so it's just those types of counseling points that I would say like are good for everyone to know um, with those like hormones, but those are like the only like ones that I see often coming up. Those are all great points. And I, I think um, going along with the counseling and, and sort of the things that we think about with the medications, I when, when I saw you speak at the meeting in San Antonio in March, uh, something has stuck with me ever since. And it was the other side of that counseling you provide for the patients. Uh, and I think the direct quote you said was, you know, what are you most excited about? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, and I guess it, I, I don't mean to kind of steal your thunder yeah. there because I think that's beautiful. But uh, yeah, if you could, you know, how what what is that side of it like for you, yeah. you know, when you're talking to patients? Like, how do you go through that part of it? Because I think, you know, we're pharmacists, we're always Oh, this yeah. could go wrong, this could go wrong, this could go wrong. But I mean, yeah. this is beautiful stuff. And like, how yeah. do we celebrate that with our patients? Definitely. And that is like, that is um, like the warm fuzzies for sure is like hearing them say, like, identify, like after you go through all of the side effects, whether they're irreversible or um, reversible side effects of hormone therapy at the end of going through all of them, I will ask, like, what are you most excited for? Just because it kind of resets the tone of like, this is an exciting moment for you. And like, for a lot of them, it is like the time of their life where they were for therapy, hormone therapy, and then after hormone therapy, like before I lived as myself. And now this is the moment where I'm going to be living as myself. And so it is a big moment. And so it's nice to celebrate by saying like, what are you most excited for? Sometimes they'll list every single thing that I mentioned. And sometimes they'll be like, oh, I want these specific things or like, I'm most excited for this and this. And then I'll always ask like, what are you most nervous for? Or what do you have more questions about? Um, And that helps us like answer any additional questions that they have. And a lot of times they aren't ready. A lot of aren't nervous or they've done so much research. And a lot of times they've done so much research because they've been waiting for so long to get access to healthcare that all they've been able to do is research what are their options and what should they ask for? What should they look for? And so I think it's important to like validate both of those spaces for them. Um, but yes, like with, um, testosterone, like the irreversible side effects that we think of right off the top of our head are like voice changes and the changes that would happen to your hair follicles getting darker, thicker hair. Um, there's, um, those are like the two big ones that I see patients a lot of times are like, I'm most excited for that. And a lot of times that's because those are those external uh, gender things that people will look at them. And with all of our gender norms, think increased facial hair, deep voice equals male. And so, but I can't say everyone's gender journey is different. So just because someone is excited about that does not mean that someone else is completely excited about other aspects. Yeah, I think one of the one of the biggest counseling points um, comes first, 
And that's ensuring that your patients have access to the medication. Knowing that there are some insurance companies that do not cover gender-affirming hormone therapy and that many of our patients are not insured. I do a lot of counseling on the use of GoodRx coupons and finding which therapies are gonna be the most affordable for patients. So in general, with testosterone, injections are go typically going to be the least expensive therapy for patients. And then with the estradiol, um, the tablets are usually the least expensive. So first discussing in terms of cost um, and what is gonna be accessible uh, and reasonable for your patient. What would be some of the expectations you'd wanna counsel patients on when they start testosterone? Like how is it gonna change them them physically? What kind of experiences will they have? Starting hormone therapy can have both uh, physical and mental and emotional changes. So like I said, we go through the whole chart of the expected changes and say for a transmasculine patient, you're going to expect increases in potentially uh, acne, oiliness of the skin. Um, there's going to be changes in their muscle mass that's going to occur um, usually within the first few months. They often can expect to have a cessation of menses, um, usually within a, a few months of starting hormone therapy. Oftentimes with horm with uh, masculinizing hormone therapy, they may see voice uh, vocal changes okay. um, over time as well, such so as like a deepening of the voice. And a lot of these effects are desired, right? Yeah, almost okay. all of these effects are desired. I've, we've even had patients that are very accepting of, of things like acne that, you know, because it's all part of you know, that masculinizing process. Right. And then with feminizing hormone mm -hmm. therapy, you know, a lot of the patients are, are hoping for uh, breast tissue growth, changes in the skin texture, improved softness of the skin. Again, changes in body composition, redistribution of mm -hmm. body fat um, are all changes that they're hoping for. And that's, um, that's where spironolactone can come into play as well with the development of breast tissue, right? We use spironolactone more as an androgen blocker. Okay. Um, there is some anecdotal evidence of progesterone okay. being used to improve breast growth. Honestly, there's not uh, as much data at this point as we'd like, and this is still an area of research. Mm -hmm. The progesterone can also cause fluid retention, which could have some contributions there as well. Breast growth takes time. Sure. Um, it, it's something that you're going to see happen over the course of a couple of years. And so we encourage, you know, patients have realistic expectations and that everybody is different and that every person's gonna respond to the hormone therapy differently. Mm -hmm. Many of our patients will also pursue um, gender-affirming surgeries as okay. well to enhance, enhance some of these um, aspect or physical changes that they're looking for. Tell me a little bit more about that. Like what, how does the, um, the surgery play into the patient's life and, and the, uh, the recovery process for those procedures? Because I know that's not something that we've really talked about a whole lot since being pharmacists and, and being a pharmacy student, I usually focus on the medical side, the medication side. Mm -hmm. But if I'm interacting with patients and this comes up, I'll want to have a little bit of prior knowledge. Mm -hmm. I'd say one of the one of the things that we I commonly counsel on is that if patients are undergoing orchiectomy, mm -hmm. um, they will no longer be uh, producing as much testosterone. So we usually can come off of their androgen blocker or their spironolactone after having that type of surgery. Um, we do refer, we have a plastic surgeon um, that we work with pretty closely and we make a lot of referrals there um, and usually try to allow patients for recovery time before bringing that back in and reassessing their hormone therapy and their goals. Mm -hmm. Usually by the time they are um, seeking surgeries, they've been on hormone therapy usually for at least a year mm -hmm. at that point. And so if they're stable on their hormone therapy, we don't see them quite as often, perhaps just bring them back yearly for a yearly check-in.
Yeah. We've talked we've talked a lot about accessibility and about about training, but I do want to talk a little bit about puberty blockers. I think that that's an interesting uh, realm of medication that I don't think I don't think we we know a whole lot about, especially as coming from like community and retail experience where we may be familiar with like estradiol and testosterone and spironolactone. Mm-hmm. We don't really see puberty blockers. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how those function. Yeah, the way that I explain it to family members. So um, again, all of the states are different as far as like the laws around youth, because it's not just like an adult can go into a clinic and say, I have, you know, I have, I'm gender expansive, whatever. I have diabetes, any health condition, and they'll get, they'll get care. When you're a youth, you have to have a parent with you. And so that complicates things. And it's an emotional process. Um, whether those emotions are positive, negative, neutral, confusing, whatever those emotions are, there, there's going to be emotions. And, um, because these, the parents, um, have, you know, had a child, they've raised the child, they've imagined a child's future. Um, and that is all very much so strongly probably revolving around gender and gender roles and gender norms. And so for these parents, when their child might come out to them and say, um, you know, I am living in the wrong body. I feel this way. I want to start hormone therapy. That can be a really big conversation for someone under the age of 18 to have. It's a big conversation for anyone of any age to have. And that's the first potential barrier to healthcare for youth. And it's hard because it's not something that as medical professionals, there's n- we can't get around that really. Um, you can, it's hard and it's potentially a very long legal process. And so uh, the way that I explain it to parents is that it's a pause button on puberty. And so hormone puberty blockers um, are most effective before someone's gone through puberty. And it's interesting because it seems like people are going through puberty early and earlier ages. And so it is a really nice thing to get started on early um, because it pauses puberty from continuing or happening if it hasn't already. It's not helpful if puberty has already happened and some of those secondary sex characteristics have developed. It's helpful in the sense that at least it will stop their dominant hormone. Um, And it's not a long-term solution because we know that hormones play so much more in our body. So bone health is what we think of a lot of times is like we have to have a minimum amount of one hormone. So I have some non-binary patients that are like, I want no hormones and that's not possible because we have to have a minimum amount of one hormone um, because of long-term bone health. And so um, puberty blockers, the way we explain them is they're a pause button and they give the parents some time to think and to come to terms and to kind of get to know their child again, because that's oftentimes what it feels like for some of the parents. Um, And of course, with hormone therapy, we don't have hard and fast research on a lot of our um, like long-term effects of hormone therapy, those types of things when it comes to fertility and things like that. Um, And so that I think is where I see patients or parents get the most emotional in my personal experience is when I get to, because I go through and I counsel on the medications, on all of the side effects, whether they're reversible, irreversible. Um, and I always counsel on reproductive health because the recommendations are, is that if you are interested in biological children, that you preserve sperm or eggs before starting hormone therapy. And that's very cost prohibitive 
for a lot of people. Um, in fact, it's usually like not even in a budget or a question that that's going to be something they can afford. Um, and so I think for parents, sometimes it's not just that their child is told them that there's someone different. It's that now they're hearing that they might not be able to have grandchildren and things like that. And again, there is nothing to say that these patients for sure are not going to be able to have children. Um, and that's always what I emphasize. I, I describe it as like, we're more drawing a curtain that we aren't for sure. We're not closing any doors. And so, um, it's a pause button to like long answer to your story of it could be once weekly or once monthly injection or every three month injection. Um, and then what we'll do is we'll start the affirming hormone therapy at low doses until we kind of reach where we would want them, the physiologic ranges, and then we could stop the puberty blocker. And then they would go through their affirmed puberty instead of having to go through a puberty that causes a lot of distress, because that's a lot of time when the dysphoria part of gender dysphoria comes out is going through puberty. And sometimes that's when people realize like, whoa, this is like not right. This is not the body that I'm supposed to be in. Like this is not what's supposed to be happening. And so um, we do get a lot of patients at kind of like that puberty age coming to us for the first time. Cause it's the first time you kind of have to think about some of those things. Cause kids are, are amazing and they live their life kind of without those gender norms as ingrained as we do. I think that's a really, really wonderful overview of the, of the process and the application of puberty blockers. And I like the analogy of the, the drawing a curtain and not closing yeah. a door. Because I can, I can definitely see how that would be a, a, a pretty big concern for, for parents. Now that the American Pharmacists Association supports the inclusion of gender-affirming therapy modules in pharmacy school curricula, pharmacy schools around the country are beginning to take a stance and ensure the healthcare professionals of tomorrow are well-versed in all aspects of caring for gender-diverse individuals. But this doesn't just apply to hormone therapy. To fully bridge the gap to care, we need to apply this understanding of the gender spectrum to all aspects of healthcare. Binary, gender-based risk factors, drug dosing, lab monitoring, all of those things factor into how we care for our gender-diverse patients. Even things as standardly taught as the Cockcroft Golf Formula have a lot more to them than we ever thought about. You know, we apply a 0.85 correction for what we consider female patients. Where does that come from? What does that even mean? As many of you may know, the Cockcroft-Galt equation was built off of a study of you know 200 some odd males in the 1970s, and we've used those estimations to do kidney-based dosing ever since. As you can imagine, when it comes to gender-based care and caring for people across the gender spectrum, uh, that becomes problematic, right? We have better ways of doing this. We have more appropriate estimates that can be done on a patient-by-patient -patient basis that don't rely on antiquated estimations of renal function based on gender or what we perceive as a patient's gender. This is just one of the many examples that we can work with and better ourselves in uh, as we go forward educating student pharmacists and frankly educating all of our pharmacist colleagues as well. I think that gender-affirming care is deserving of a dedicated module. When you look at the prevalence of transgender and non-binary patients, transgender patients make up more than 0.6% of our population, and it's even higher in our younger generations, so the prevalence is growing. The prevalence of, of uh, transgender patients is higher than other disease states such as, say, HIV. Okay. Um, and so to put it in perspective, this is a very deserving topic uh, for pharmacists and upcoming pharmacy students to have this exposure before they are out 
um, experiencing these patients in their practice settings, um, because we can encounter transgender patients in every healthcare setting. Right. It's not just in a gender medicine clinic. These patients are seeking primary care, uh, behavioral health services, inpatient services. And so it's really important that we feel not only comfortable, but competent in interacting with these patients. Mm -hmm. It's really important that we prepare our students for being a competent practitioner. So I encourage everyone to advocate for this uh, at their respective schools of pharmacy. Yeah. I think this is very important. Pharmacy curriculum from the faculty side, there's so much that you have to fit in and limited hours and limited space. And so what I think my focus has been moving forward is integrating it into the courses that I do have a touchstone in. Like there are uh, trans people and gender nonconforming people don't just have hormone therapy as their medication. They have diabetes, they have hypertension, they have strokes and heart attacks and all of those things. And so how do we integrate just gender nonconforming people into all of our cases, right? It's not, um, and then even going back to like, if gender is not relevant, should we even put it in our cases? Like, why do we, why do we keep doing that? Like, that's a very heteronormative thing to do is like, we always have like a white male coming into your pharmacy, yada, yada, yada. And so, um, if it doesn't add to the case, why are we adding it? And so it's just there, I have lots of thoughts about that, but I think integrating it throughout the curriculum, um, is extremely important. And just realizing that just because someone looks a certain way doesn't necessarily one mean that's even your patient who's asking your que the questions or picking up the medication. Um, but also you don't know what organ system someone has just by looking at them potentially. So degendering or language is, is helpful in that setting. Um, but also making sure that we do good intakes on sex, gender, and pronouns is a good way to make sure that we are treating people correctly. Using someone's affirmed pronouns and name is a simple but incredibly important and impactful way to start creating a more inclusive environment. And it's not just being kind. Data have demonstrated improved outcomes in gender diverse youth when pronouns that they want to use are used by their healthcare professionals. More and more platforms are including spaces for pronouns on social media, medical software, even Zoom, which we use for these discussions. And if it's not built in your platform, it's pretty easy to build it in yourself. Simple set of parentheses after your name in the display uh, or saying your pronouns at the beginning of your conversation. Uh, these are small steps that can really have a measurable impact in, in ways that we might not even be thinking about. Well, the comment I was just going to make earlier was like, this is the most holistic care we have to give to like any patient. Um, I don't think we've ever been taught about like how to care for a patient at this level. Um, it's kind of crazy. Like, you know, I don't think we never think of referring to a patient for their correct name and like a soap note or anything like that. Like it's, it's kind yeah. of out there thing. And it's something I think, you know, students like us need to experience. Yeah. Like when I met a community pharmacy, I know that a lot of community pharmacies, like the gold standard is to use a last name, but I would say it's very important to use a last name, right? Because that one's not gender specific. Whereas like if you call someone and say, hey, like page them on the over intercom and say, Nancy, your prescription's ready. And Nancy, who was born Bob and is going by Bob right now with his mom, um, is like, uh, like, I can't go get my prescription right now because they called Nancy. But like, I'm Bob with my mom. But I, even though I'm picking up, you know, hormone therapy today and my doctor who knows that I'm Nancy 
wrote Nancy on my prescription. And so the pharmacy just called out Nancy, but I'm today I'm Bob because I'm with my family and I haven't had that conversation yet. So it's very interesting. So I would say last names are great to use. I try not to use, and I can't remember the correct term for them, but titles, I guess, Mrs. Mr. It's, it's tough. I still mess up. I still do it. It's, um, I think I live in New Mexico and the Hispanic culture, like titles are very important. So it's hard not to use Mr. Mrs. Um, things like that. And so, but I do try not to do it because I, you never, I don't know. I don't assume. I don't like to assume you guys is the one that I have the hardest time getting rid of. So being from North Carolina, I did start using y'all a little bit when I came back, but I need to get better at it. I did get made fun of when I came back and started using y'all, but it is just such a nice gender neutral term. It's, it is such a gift that I didn't realize was a gift until, yeah. until I wrote, like, I, I'm allowed to do y'all now. And that makes me so mm-hmm. happy for these purposes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I like those stickers that say y'all means all. Cause I'm like, that mm-hmm. is such a nice, like, you don't even probably know that that's like a nice thing in the, like this setting, but it is a nice thing. So Zoom's so- been really nice. Cause you can put your pronouns. Like that's the other thing is faculty that I think about. And uh, we're going to have a conversation or a faculty meeting. Like, should we be asking students pronouns or are we potentially putting them in a situation that makes them uncomfortable? And so it's one of those interesting things where you don't want to ever have to force someone to out themselves when they're not ready to be outed. And so um, requiring pronouns potentially does that. And I can't say that there's like a right answer for every situation, but that's just one of those things that I think about a lot now. Well, uh, I think um, that you brought up a very nice point earlier about that that is sort of relevant here about um, putting something out there formally can backfire even when it has good intentions. And I'm I'm thinking Mm -hmm. as a faculty member, you know, yeah, maybe it would be good in the long run, in, a, in an ideal setting where we're asking uh, students to, you know, use their pronouns. But on the flip side of that, there's nothing stopping me now. Power of normalizing that and just like yeah. not even making a big deal about it when when you do it um, as a faculty member, as someone that's presenting, can really, you know, uh, pave the way pretty good there. I mean, even if you know half the students, even more, don't don't necessarily even pick up on it. You're it'll you're mean something to someone. Yeah. yeah, it'll mean something to someone in your audience. When parents are not supportive of of children that are going through this, um, there is an increase in health disparities experienced by those children. Um, So parental support is actually a protective factor. And so I would encourage if if the atmosphere is right, if you can have these conversations with the parents about you know the statistics and the potential harms that are being experienced by their um, by their children when they aren't receiving their parental support. Um, perhaps going from that angle can be eye-opening and educational for the parents. Um, but also in the sense of you said you mentioned school and mm-hmm. other. Um, other situations and other environments, I think it's really important that we offer these safe spaces for students where um, they can express what they're going through and have somebody who's there for them um, and somebody who's an adult that's there for them. But but I agree that's it's very challenging to navigate those waters when you're experiencing pushback from parents as well. And school can be for you know any student just such a huge social crucible especially for someone who's experiencing that kind of that kind of gender identity crisis at that pivotal age and not having the support of one's parents I'm, i 
can't even imagine how challenging that would be. Important. And I have hope. I definitely have hope for the future. You know, when I when I work with younger generations, I I see their respect, I see their inclusivity, and their care that they have for one another. Um, so I do have hope mm-hmm. for our future generations. There's a term that we've used historically, cultural competence. Mm-hmm. And recently, I've become exposed to the term cultural humility. Mm. Um, being a shift from cultural competence may suggest that there is like an end, an end point. Whereas cultural humility is a term that encompasses it being more of a lifelong process and a mm. learning process that's never over of being open-minded and continually learning more um, and becoming more and more not just competent, but understanding and accepting of positive interactions with other people. So I tend to use that term cultural humility more often than say cultural competence and how we how we work with patients and other people. I like that. Or how we interact with them. You know, as someone, you know, I I might be a well-intentioned pharmacist or pharmacy student. Um, what what would be the best way for me to to start to get educated about this? You know that because because you know the transgender individuals um, as much as many of us probably know someone, have a friend, family member. Uh, a lot of people don't. What's really important is getting people acclimated, getting people to a place where that just becomes extremely normal uh, to, to have yeah. transgender patients and transgender friends. And I guess, like, what's what's a good starting point um, for a pharmacist, for a pharmacy student? Um, for a human? Yeah. yeah. I think for it's a like human. from Absolutely. a human standpoint. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I work on, and I'd still I work on it because it our language is so ingrained with gender and using pronouns and things like that. And Mr. and Mrs. is I try really hard to de-gender my language and it's difficult. And so I try to use they, them pronouns until someone has explicitly said their pronouns or made them available. But at the same time, when we think about being in the profession of pharmacy and as a healthcare provider and our responsibility to our patients, um, I always want to make sure that I think about safety first too. So When I'm working in a community-based pharmacy, we might get a prescription for someone who is born male. All of our pharmacy um, EHR says that they're male. And all of a sudden, they get a prescription for estradiol and spironolactone, which are gender-affirming hormone therapies, which for me means something. But for other pharmacists, might not mean something. And they might think that's an error. Why would someone born male be on these medications? And so they could unintentionally potentially out a patient. And so that is like one of my biggest things is just a safety mechanism in place. So one of the things that that goes to is private counseling areas, stepping aside, asking if you can counsel patients. If they're with someone, you never assume that the person that they're with knows their gender identity or knows the medications that they're on, right? We would never do that for anyone else, but it is very common in community practice for people to come up and check out on their medications and to say, um, did your doctor tell you what this medication is for? And just to start a counseling session without thinking about the fact that the person that they brought with them might not want to know that they're on a high blood pressure medication. Um, and that's kind of like what I think of is because we might not think anything of it. Like I, hypertension is very common. And so why would we worry about stepping aside? Um, but it's not our decision to ever uh, reveal a patient's health condition. And that's just standard HIPAA. But for this patient population, even more so taking precautions, because we know that this patient population already is very distrusting potentially of the healthcare system, more so than other patients because of their experiences. Um, And they're at higher risk for interpersonal and uh, 
interrelationship violence. And so it's one of those things that when I think about it, I think about a good place to start is degendering our language, making sure we're following best practices when we're counseling patients. And that also then goes into providing, making sure you're being gender affirming because you're looking at someone and you're saying, I can see from my heteronormative, gender normative lens that I look through that you don't fit into a cis model in my mind, in my implicit biases. And so therefore, I'm going to ask you what your preferred pronouns are. And so right there, if they're standing with someone, they might be like, why did you ask them their preferred pronouns? And it could be because you're looking at the F-style prescription or because you've decided that they look like you should be asking about their pronouns. When really, I would love if we lived in a world where we just asked everyone, what are your pronouns? Because why not? Like if in the cis world, I feel like if we just get asked direct questions without trigger words or words that are not normally associated with them, like the word preferred, we're more likely to just respond and move on with our day. So what are your pronouns? What was the sex you were assigned at birth? What is your gender? Right there, you've gotten everything you need to treat that patient gender affirming, whether they're a cis female or a trans female or non-binary, um, as well as to provide the highest level of care. Because one of the things that we run into, if you only ask someone what their gender is and you don't ask what the sex they were assigned at birth, you can't look at someone and just know if they're trans or not. So someone may not fill their hormone therapy with your pharmacy, but they might fill everything else. And so not knowing what organ systems they have might put you at an increased risk to actually dispense a medication that could be harmful to the patient. Let's talk about your experience again. What for you has been one of the most rewarding um, aspects of caring for, for these patients? Probably the most, the most rewarding part of caring for transgender patients is being part of their journey. For many of our patients, I'm the one that's in the room with them when they take that first dose um, of hormone therapy. And so to be a part of that momentous day in their life has just been super rewarding for me as a pharmacist. But then also seeing patients in a, a chronic care clinic where we're seeing them repeatedly and developing these relationships, we're also joining them as they you know are expressing improvements in their mental health their well-being their anxiety their depression is improving um, it's it's so rewarding to be a part of that um, and to help contribute to the betterment of our patients mm -hmm. i would say that this is the most rewarding aspect of my of my career thus far as a pharmacist um, I work with a lot of different patients, patients with diabetes, lipid disorders, um, osteoporosis, but there's something special about this population, their level of motivation, their engagement in their care. They're just such a wonderful population of patients to work with. It's very refreshing and rewarding. As pharmacists, as the most accessible healthcare that we always like to tote ourselves as, like you have those touch points with patients all of the time. And so we should be a safe place for them to come. And if you are, and the first time you have like a gender affirming interaction with someone, it is very like, for me, it's emotional, both in a very positive way, like, oh, that was great. But then also like very sad because no one should be so emotional and grateful that I treated them with respect and I called them the na their name or that I used the right pronoun. Like that should not be a shocking revelation for people. And it is. Um, sometimes. And so that's one of those things that like the safer we can make the healthcare system for them, that's the best way to increase access to care.
Thank you for listening, and special thanks to Drs. Kelsey Aragon and Sarah Kokosa for joining the conversation. Music on this podcast is by Dave Jules. If you missed it, check out the previous episode linked in the description. And tune in to the rest of the series, released monthly, where we'll discuss medication access, stopping the stigma, and legislative barriers. <laughs>